0: Hello, once again, from this side of the internet, my name is Zach Caruso, I'm your host, I'm your, your Sherpa on this journey into the world of addiction and treatment, recovery, inspiration, hope, will, and grace, the whole nine yards, so thank you for joining me once again, and welcome back to another episode of the Treat Addiction, Save Lives podcast. I get to talk to a lot of really cool and interesting people on this podcast and today's guest is no exception dr paul early took some time to sit down with me for a chat and uh, what a great conversation we had dr early talked about everything from the ins and outs of addiction as a disease uh, the idea of holistic healing and there being many roads to a place of peace which is a quote of his that i really love and i got to ask him about and he even shared the story of his own addiction and recovery. Um, Dr. Early is just so cool and so easy to talk to. He shared a lot of great insight and personal stories in this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Okay, so some background on Dr. Early. He received his medical degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and has been treating addiction for over 30 years with most of that time uh, actually being spent providing addiction treatment specifically to healthcare professionals. In addition to his medical practice, he's also a speaker and an educator in the addiction medicine space. He's an author having written and published several books on addiction and treatment. He's a past president of ASAM and has contributed to the ASAM criteria, you know, just to list you a few of his accomplishments. Um, All right, so grab your coffee or your tea or your monster energy drink. I'm looking at you med school listeners doing your residencies. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Dr. Paul Early. You know, you you have such an extensive career and I want to go all the way back. And the first thing I really want to ask you is, you know, why addiction medicine? There's so many different fields that you could have gone to or, or, or you know, pursued over the course of this career. Why all those years ago was it addiction medicine that was the thing for you?
1: That's a great question, Zach. I, I started out my um, undergraduate career actually studying neurophysiology and was heading off to graduate school in neurophysiology. And I've always been interested in brain science. And that was where I was heading. Um, Unfortunately, my mother became ill and my uh, plans changed. I went back home uh, following uh, my undergraduate degree and wound up uh, applying to medical school because it was an uh, an easier place to go in the town that I lived in. And so it was kind of convenience. And it was, there was a little bit of toss up in between medical school and getting a PhD, uh, partially because uh, my family has many doctors in it. And so medicine is kind of a default uh, kind of career for our family. So I um, went to medical school and uh, studied neurology. And I was going to become a neurologist and very interested in academic neurology. I wanted to do research as well. And then addiction took its toll on me. Um, I got quite ill with addiction, uh, prescribing myself opioid drugs, uh, which was much easier to do back when there were fewer controls over them in the past. Um, Became sicker and sicker, um, and near the end of my uh, training as a neurologist, um, wound up uh, having to go to treatment. I was living in Oregon, and um, uh, the I had to meet with the um, Board of Medicine in Oregon, and they were very gracious to me, which was quite shocking for the era that in which I got sick, and told me that if I went to treatment, that I had to um, I had to do that and be successful, and they would consider reinstating my license, despite the fact that I had been writing numerous prescriptions for opioids uh, for myself and got very, very ill. Then when I finished treatment, which was a long, prolonged, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, I was more of the slowly type. Um, When I finished treatment, um, it became clear that I was not um, going to be able to go back into academic neurology. It was just, you know, I had kind of sullied my name, so to speak. But in the meantime, after spending many years, many years, many months in treatment, I realized that um, this was fascinating. The field was fascinating. And it was an intersection between the brain science that I loved and this newfound thing of recovery and psychotherapy and what is it and what is it about me that led me towards having an illness? And that was how I started. And I wound up back then having to find mentors. There was no training, there was no fellowships programs. Um, I just had to find the best darn uh, docs and psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers who understood about addiction diseases. And I just, you know, went to each of them and asked for help in learning how to be uh, what became a career in addiction medicine.
0: That's incredible. And I wonder if if you'd be willing to share what you remember about that time, you know, um, dealing with that, uh, and then, you know, some of the story and and your journey to recovery, what do you remember about that time and and afterward, you know, when you went through treatment and, you know, started this new chapter?
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot, uh, in there. We could probably take a, a, an entire hour on that. I'll try to make it somewhat brief. Um, first of all, when anyone develops an addiction and I was no exception, my behavior became more erratic. I was um, problematic <clears throat> as a physician. My uh, fellow residents and attendings actually covered for me quite a bit. My self esteem started going downhill because I, I, you know, I felt terrible inside. On the outside, I was trying to work hard to learn the skills necessary to be a competent physician. And on the inside, my brain was just kind of obsessed with finding ways and means of getting the next pill. And so that became a kind of a constant downhill uh, course. Um, there were times when I would be so sick, I couldn't come into work. Um, <clears throat> my friends basically said, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with you. So I became very, very isolated. And, um, when I was healthy enough, I would, go into work, I would detox myself off the opioids, and <clears throat> and I would do fine for a period of time, and then I would slide back in, and each fall back into that deep uh, hole uh, worsened my self-concept. So I came to treatment truly a broken man. That helped me because I understood the kind of brittle nature of, of the personality once it develops addiction and how fragile people in early recovery are and how much they, the journey, how complex the journey is. Um, Most people who don't understand addiction see it as a problem with an attachment to substances that if you can just somehow pull that away, people just get better. But the journey out of the, um, where I was really was a journey of self-exploration, therapy, recovery, support through um, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, those kinds of organizations, and and just a, a very complicated thing. It also led to questions about you know some of the losses I had in my life. Um, my mother died when I was young, for instance, and that was very traumatic for me. So all of that was just, you know, that the, the complexity of the recovery journey is, I think, something that a lot of people don't understand when they think about addiction. They think, oh, you just stop using the drugs and then you, know, you just kind of work on not using again and everything would be fine. Right. But most people with addiction early in remission are very fragile, broken people including me.
0: You know, you said something when we last talked, uh, and it stuck out to me and I I wrote it down. You said there are many roads to a place of peace. Can you talk to me a little bit about, because you you have this, you know, very kind of, um, holistic approach to treatment and recovery. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? and, And how do you view that? What does that mean that there are many roads to a place of peace?
1: Yeah, the, the, what you learn is people who develop a strong recovery set of skills recovery skills have to really be almost better at managing things in their lives, their feelings, um, their relationships, their connectedness with others. And they have to learn a set of skills uh, that are both external and also internal that are, Really necessary to prevent relapse, and um, so for me there was just um, many ways of getting there. I've watched that over the years. Some people come into treatment; they're not as maybe broken psychologically. They may have just a set of kind of almost behavioral things they do: get the alcohol out of the house. Um, conceptualize very clearly that the first drink of alcohol leads to many more. Um, You know, maybe their interpersonal life with their spouse or their children or their parents is in a good place. Maybe they have a social network. And those people might attach to a social network that's healthy, um, learn how to talk about that, And they find the peace that comes from recovery. Other people really have a much more complex journey. And matter of fact, most people do. Um, The ways that one gets there is a combination of understanding yourself, being around people that care about you even when you don't care about yourself. And that could occur in church, in a synagogue, uh, you could be in a, a, a Buddhist monastery. You could um, do that with just a loving family. But it's it defined all of that to be effective. You usually need a tincture of people who are also in recovery who can say, yeah, that happened to me too. Let me tell you what I did about it. So. Um, that's really where there are many, many roads to peace. Many people can get there in a different way. Um, And each person I've found that I've worked with is a little different. There are some givens that are, frankly, easier paths, and that's to be around other people in recovery who have worked through that journey. Um, And so that's where the 12-step recovery programs often come in quite nicely for many, many people. But they're not right for everyone. And, um, the, but here's a little t- tip about that. Um, people, w- when people get in recovery, my patients say, well, I don't want to go to AA. And I say,
0: 1524.
1: And it, and it, um, and I say, well, you, you know why you don't want to go to AA is that who you are as a person doesn't like AA. Because it teaches you to be somebody else and you ain't that person yet. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, part of the resistance to change um, makes people discard possible options. So I encourage everyone to find their own way, but I often find a certain tincture of other people in recovery seems to be the most central ingredient to stay in remission. Um, because they understand you, they understand how you're broken. And if they're further along, they can say, yeah, been there, done that, you know, try this for a while and let me know what happens. Um, and then there's also, again, in organized Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a set of steps that you take and all those are is a, is a, um, you know, a, a, an ingredient list and, and a, a steps so you need to bake the recovery cake. That's all that is. And um, and you, you do it right, and the and the solution uh, is good. So that's one of the reasons why I think that's the first step. And when people say, "Well, I don't like AA," I say, "Well, of course not." <laughs> you know, the you know, no one likes AA when they first get there, except for a few people. And then they stay there for a while, and they say, "Boy, this is really helpful." And what happens when that? By the way, what happens that when that goes on is they come back to me and they say. You know, I went to an AA meeting and I learned a lot, they say, with incredulity. And I say, well, yeah, that's kind of what I've been saying. Um, But anyway, so, but that's not the only way. It just happens to be, in my mind, you get everything you need in one box uh, to go along with the cooking metaphor.
0: Right. And you're already talking about this idea of community, right? Like finding like-minded people who have been through the same things. How do you think on on a kind of a bigger scale how do you think that treating addiction, and especially taking this kind of holistic approach, how do you think that it can not only transform the micro level of the individual, but like the communities that they're in as well?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's a really uh, interesting idea and concept. People who have addiction disorders are by their nature very self-centered and selfish. And recovery is you learn to stay in remission from addiction by giving things away rather than pulling things to you. And the pulling things to you is the natural physiologic effect because there's this um the substances, even though they're not fixing anything, carefully tell you we can fix all of your problems. And so you pull, pull, pull. So when people that are in addiction as an illness are selfish, self-centered, and interestingly enough, the antidote comes from becoming, developing gratitude and giving to others. And so that type of a thing is deeply infectious and sorely needed in our culture today, frankly. Um, I, I like spending time with other people in recovery, frankly, because they don't talk about themselves. They talk about you know the outside world. You know, they talk about what they're doing to help others. And that's a it's such a joy. Now you're going to find that in other places, churches and synagogues, you know, um, those, those sorts of places, um, you know. And and um, so it's not just AA, but I do believe the quality of that happens when you're in recovery is you become um, other centered. You, you know, you you actually get what you want by giving it away is one of the things they say. And so helping other people, being grateful, uh, being having a general attitude of gratitude, they say, that that's infectious and something that our culture really deeply needs because we're in a culture of, it's frankly, a little individual centric and a little self-centered.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, I have to shift gears for a second because I really want to, I really want to ask you about stigma. We talk about it a lot on the podcast, and I know, again, when we talked before, we touched on this a lot. So I I, I want to get your opinion on a few things, but, um, you know, we know that it's a barrier for treatment for a lot of people. Um, what have you witnessed with patients or even faced yourself maybe in the way of like resistance throughout your addiction medicine career? What kind of things have you gone through and seen um, around stigma, whether, like I said, it's with patients or, or physicians themselves?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stigma and, um, and, and one of the phrases I have is, um, stigma starts at home. People that are in remission, um, really don't feel well about themselves at first and, and getting better because what they did in their illness is usually pretty unpleasant. And that's what people see when they see people with addiction. The ways to combat stigma is really a lot about what ASAM is doing, changing some of the language around this whole concept of um, of what recovery is, uh, uh, talking about substance misuse versus abuse, um, using phraseology that uh, talks say things like people who use drugs versus drug addicts, um, and there's I have. Most of that is really wonderful, uh, but there's also a, a fine line in that. Unfortunately, is that you have to see what you what you've been doing when you're a substance user is somehow negative or bad for you, and so we don't want the the language to necessarily stop people from saying, "Well, no, I'm not a heroin addict. I'm a person who um, uses." medications, which is what a lot of my patients would say if they were misusing benzodiazepines or oral opioids. They'd say, oh, I just misused my medications. And I said, well, it's deeper than that. So anyway, internally, it has to be a journey of seeing the darkness and seeing that. But externally, it has to be something where people, uh, because people feel externally, people feel judged and, 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 um, uh, and thought of in a derisive way. Um, so a lot of the languaging that we're doing at ASAM is all about helping the general public understand that it's an illness and it's an illness. Remarkably, it's an illness like a lot of other chronic conditions. It's a chronic condition. It doesn't, doesn't go away. Um, we can talk about more about that in a minute. Um, but it's a chronic condition just like diabetes, you know, right. you don't say to diabetes, I can't believe you're I can't believe you have to take that insulin all the time. How disgusting. Right. Right. Um, and people, when they're using substances, usually have to use that substance a lot. And what they do is the behavior they have a negative. I get it. But the only way, only way to, to get people to look at it is to see it as a chronic condition, just like hypertension, just like diabetes that has that we understand a lot of the brain circuitry in and we understand how it works. And, um, and so, and the solution is actually a lot easier. I mean, if there's one chronic condition you want to have, I tell my patients it's addiction. You don't have to take insulin every day. You don't have to take an antihypertensive any day. You just have to take care of yourself every day. Now taking care of yourself is there's some devil in that details, obviously, but, Taking care of yourself is what you do and you have to do it the rest of your life. Being, having someone that's in long-term recovery, like myself, I'm not done with it. I'm just getting better at
0: it. You know, you mentioned this and I, I, you're the perfect person. I want to ask, um, you've talked about addiction as a chronic disease, right? Something that, that, you know, um, to some people might be a new concept to say that addiction is a disease. Um, can you, for anyone that's not familiar, maybe, uh, explain or summarize this concept this idea of addiction as a disease Um, you know how would you kind of put that for either layman who doesn't understand it or someone who's new to that idea
1: oh that's one of my favorite topics I will try to do it in a concise fashion (laughs) first of all the the single biggest driver as to whether you're going to have an addiction disorder are your genetics so your genetic tend it's a clearly, there's a part of it that's genetically driven. And then there's a whole list of other things. But the biggest single factor is genetics. So when I teach the medical students, I say the single most important question you're going to ask about addiction to a patient is to get a clear history about family history of whether there's addiction within that family, alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever. So if it's genetically driven, then already we know that it has a biologic basis. The second thing we know is how the brain circuitry is changed is very characteristic. It's complex as everything is in the brain, but more and more data is becoming clear that not only is there a central driver that's very primitive in the brain that drives the addiction illness, that it's it's a pile of kindling to which a just a little flame will ignite in the, in the susceptible individual and the kindling is produced by your genetics, the, the pile of, of, uh, ready to fire off, um, uh, small pieces of, of wooden paper that, uh, and so, uh, so that's the kindling and that's the genetic setup. And then the firelight is drinking alcohol, using drugs, usually at an earlier age, the earlier you start, the more aggressive the illness is and the more rapidly it progresses. And then that initial brain response has a cascade of longer-term brain responses in terms of um, loss of inhibition against um, using more, uh, the sense that it's a central part of your life. It affects your memory circuits. It affects just a, it, it. It drives so many different things within who you are that. If it's almost like if you're going east and you have an alcohol and you're going to, and you, you got that pile of kindling, you light that fire, you go west. I mean, you go fast. And we know that um, the brain circuitry is, is becoming more and more clear and it's more and more complex than just a simple um, pile of wood, uh, so to speak, getting ignited. And that once the problem is, is once it is ignited, it creates a series of long-term changes in the brain. So that if you have someone who has, um, if, if you go to an AA meeting, for instance, and you sit and you listen to someone that has 30 years of recovery and they're telling their story about their life, which happens in some meetings, when they start talking about their past use, their eyes get this faraway gaze and they have this almost kind of, uh, you know, um, they're, they're, they're remembering what it was like and unconsciously they fall back into that hole. And then they, what they have to do is pull themselves out, right? During the time. And that is that falling into that hole of memories of past use stays active your entire life. So someone that has 40 years of recovery still has cravings to use alcohol. They just know how to manage them. it's, And there are some people that are lucky and they don't have any cravings. I know that's true. I don't want to, I want to put that exception out there, but for the most people, the illness remains alive as a series of memories and experiences. And, um, and, and so relapse into using is always a problem. So you have to teach a skill that is lifelong. You have to convince your patients, look, this isn't something next month or next year. You can't go back to drinking and it's going to be okay. And that's something we've learned over and over and over again, that, that if, if people do return to substance use, if they have an addiction disorder, that they fall into a hole
0: and each time they fall into it, they go deeper down. So I, I want to ask you about the role that medication plays in recovery as well. Tell me what medications are we looking at in this process? How do they work in the recovery continuum? And um, what's the, you know, what's the general kind of opinion and view of these medications? Are they widely accepted? Is there stigma that surrounds them that kind of needs to be overcome and addressed? You know, tell me a little bit about that.
1: So Zach, there, there are different medications that do different things and they do depending on the disease state, the types of uh, substances misused and, and the effect of the medication. And in general, medications are uh, that, that help people attain and remain in remission are accepted uh, not only by the medical community, but also by the 12-step support communities, by psychotherapists that work with people in recovery, uh, because those medications are very effective and they, uh, they, will, they help the individual either discontinue the use or um, or they help prevent relapse, and some do both. Uh, so there are certain medications that work with alcohol use disorder. There's certain medications work that work with opioid use disorder, and actually, there's one medication that works with both, for, for uh, believe it or not. Um, and those medications really are, uh, are are ways of getting a getting your arms around the tiger, and you know, keeping it from. Uh, dragging the individual away, they they provide a uh, a way of um, stopping the compulsive use of substances, and uh, and then people more available to things like psychotherapy or support groups. And some people who take those medications don't need um, don't need much more than the medication support to remain in remission. But most people need more. They need skill building. They need to learn how to uh, make forgiveness of themselves, but they can't do that if they can't stop the compulsive use of substances. And that's really where the medications are the most powerful.
0: And I've got to ask, uh, as a lay person, how would you explain how do these medications work in that process? What are they doing for the, the patient in recovery to kind of help them, like you're saying, get their arms around it? Well,
1: so for, it depends, again, let's, let's uh, talk about one medication, which is buprenorphine. What buprenorphine does is it decreases the cravings for the drugs of abuse. Um, it and in doing so, that individual can actually focus on going to work or showing up for therapy or showing up to go to a a uh, a narcotics anonymous meeting or an alcoholics anonymous meeting. So they they get rid of the craving or the drug hunger, uh, which is really the problem that is, it, it is so powerful. And for those people that don't understand addiction, um, all you have to do is not eat for 24 hours and sit around, uh, you know, your favorite dessert and not say, and have someone say, don't, don't eat that dessert. So if, if you, if you don't know what cravings are, human beings have a lot of cravings for a lot of different things. And and so that's really what the medications do is they decrease the cravings. That's the primary effect of almost all these medications. They decrease the drug hunger, the cravings, and in in doing so, decrease the probability of relapse. Uh, um, When someone has a substance use disorder and they they tend to have all or nothing thinking. So, you know, if, say, someone has uh, abstained from opiates for... Uh, a week at a time, they're feeling really great, and then they have a strong craving. If they start using opioids again, it, it, it's, it's, it's like a house of fire. It, it, it's not like you say, oh boy, that was a mistake. It winds up kind of taking over that person dramatically. So anything that will stop even a limited amount of use of the drug of misuse is helpful. So that's how buprenorphine works. There's another drug called naltrexone, that if they happen to take opiates, the drug has no effect, which is a way of decoupling the taking the drug from any effect, it literally blocks the the individual from having any response to the drug. And even before they relapse, it decreases cravings as well. And then there's some substances with alcohol that decrease the craving for alcohol. Um, And there's several different substances that do that. So involving an addiction medicine physician, is a great first step in figuring out this journey of recovery if you will because they know which medication to use that will fit the the person that's in the room with them
0: you're such an extensive career and and understanding of addiction and i wonder you know it's going to be tough to pinpoint one but i wonder if there's a story that comes to mind of um you know someone that you've treated someone that's that's gone through recovery that you've helped that really stands out in your mind as to like one of those, this is why I treat addiction stories? Um,
1: well, I've got a lot of those. Um, <laughs> first of all, m- most of my career has been um, treating physicians with substance use disorder. And um, so I've had the, the, the joy of taking care of physicians who um, go on to not only understand addiction, but to be good physicians for the rest of their lives. And that has been just, I, I mean, I can't describe the, how deep that moves me. Um, I had uh, an individual who came to me who was a physician who was, like me, was abusing or misusing, I see I said it there, misusing oral opioid drugs and um, getting them from various sources. He was um, worked in an emergency room. His life fell apart. His wife divorced him. Uh, he was on the edge of losing his job. Um, the medical board sent out an investigator. Actually, it was a state drug inspector in our office uh, in in Georgia. And the state drug inspector showed up at his office, and he called me up. And then the state drug inspector gave him my phone number, said you should call this guy, and and. Uh, so he called me and she had my cell phone. So he called me on my cell phone and said, Hey, Dr. Early, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And I got this state drug inspector in front of me and she gave me your phone number. What should I do? And I said, do you see the badge that she has on? Yes, I do. Do you see the gun on her holster? Yes, I do. On the other side, do you see the handcuffs? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. I say, well, what do you think you should do? (laughs) And she said, uh, do whatever she says. I said, that's a good idea. So he was at that time, he was, he had lost his family. He'd lost his, any relationship with his children. And um, he went through treatment and he did very, very well. Uh, He finished treatment and decided that he was going to change his career um, he moved into an area where he was taking care of um, fallen veterans. Uh, he wound up getting involved with the armed services and um, having a special um, setting up a, an entire uh, flight of, that would go into, into countries where there was battles. He would land and go in there and pull out his um, pull out these individuals who were uh, ill and fly them back to the United States. So they, you know, in a, and and perform essentially emergency medicine work in an airplane flying across the country. Um, And he got better and better at it and started helping other people develop the same system in other countries. So that's a kind of example of someone that was very self-centered. Oh, and by the way, Although he never got remarried, his children now love him to death. His ex-wife and he are good friends. And um, he's recreated um, his life in a totally different way Um, and has been uh, actually an advocate for other physicians getting care. So that's one of the many stories that I have. And each of these individuals just... Um, I, I just, I can't describe the joy I see when I hear about them. I hear about what they're doing. They sometimes send me pictures of where they are across the, the world. This guy would send me pictures from all over the world and I would say, wow, is that great or what? That's
0: incredible. You know, you have so much experience, so much knowledge, um, such a long career. I wonder what advice would you offer to the, to the younger generation, the next generation of healthcare professionals that are getting into addiction medicine and that are going to pursue this field, what advice do you have? What insights do you have? What maybe do you wish that you knew when you started out that you want to pass along?
1: Yeah, well, uh, so I alluded earlier to the fact that there was no training when I was younger. So I just, I had to pick it up from all kinds of different people. The, I think if I was to say something to the young, young addiction medicine professional, it would be to understand the full life cycle of the disease and to get some skills in therapy. Addiction medicine is a field where you deal with people that are in an exquisite amount of pain and they often (laughs) uh, flummox their caregivers through that pain. They make it difficult for someone to be successful. So to learn the jujitsu of the therapeutic relationship with people that have addiction disorders is very, very complicated. When to dance, when to push, when to pull back. Um, That dance is something I learned from several different people, uh, an analyst that I spent years studying with, experiential psychotherapy. Learning all of that, learning the whole life cycle is what's really important. If you just focus on that initial getting people, and, and you may not ever do that work down the road. You might be someone that's in an emergency room just triaging people, but you know where the the arc of the recovery process. And understanding that arc of recovery process is really important. That the the way, you know, there's a saying from a treatment center down here in Georgia that's like this. It's 10 miles into the woods and it's 10 miles out meaning when you get sick you know it's 10 miles into the woods but you're in there and then you need to need to spend some time walking back out and and that's something that every addiction medicine physician should understand the complexity of the journey that they're going through that's why many addiction medicine physicians early on were themselves in recovery and so they could understand that whole arc and if you if you didn't you know, hopefully you haven't had to get sick with addiction to come to this field. But if you, if you didn't just spend time looking at the entire process and understanding that entire process is super important.
0: Dr. Early, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. This has been a fantastic conversation. I know I learned a lot. I hope everybody else did too. Uh, and maybe we can convince you to come back on again soon. We'd love to talk to you more.
1: Absolutely happy to do that, Zach. I enjoy talking and and you are a wonderful person to be with.
0: Well, I think Dr. Early's idea of there being many roads to a place of peace is one that's going to stick with me. It's just a good life philosophy too, isn't it? Um, Well, a huge thank you going out to Dr. Paul Early. I will certainly try to have him back on again soon so we can talk more. And I hope you all got something out of today's episode and enjoyed it. Listen, if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, we want you to know that you are not alone. Treatment is available and recovery is possible. Visit the link in our show notes to access patient resources like our physician directory, patient and family support groups, and much more. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you stopping by and hanging out for a while. More great episodes and interviews are coming your way this year. We're just getting started. So subscribe, stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And until next time, my friends, be well and remember, treat addiction, save lives.